0: chocolate 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 Chocolate. from dame cacao i'm max gandy and this is chocolate on the road the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world so let's hit the road hey chocolate lovers welcome to the final full interview of our break Today we're talking with Cynthia Lung of Soma Chocolate, based in Toronto, Canada. This interview was recorded for next week's full-length episode, and we were actually cut off in the middle and unable to finish our interview. But we got a fair amount of the way through my questions, and Cynthia has a lot of wisdom from nearly two decades in the small-batch chocolate
1: arena. My name is Cynthia. I'm part owner with David Kathleen of Soma Chocolate.
0: And where are you located?
1: We are located in Toronto and I'm sitting in our half-built factory in Parkdale, which is a little, it's a little neighborhood within Toronto.
0: And are you both from Toronto originally?
1: No, we're both from small towns. So I'm a little bit, I'm from Lindsay, which is a small town east and david's from the north in ontario so sudbury a mining a little mining town
0: when you two were growing up did you always want to be chocolate makers what, what <laughs> brought you two together
1: uh well we are a couple so what do you mean
0: <laughs> like you started off as a couple and got married and then decided oh Let's become chocolate makers. That seems like a little, uh, Lily Wonka (laughs) fantasy come to life. We should do it. Like what, what
1: what was the motivation? It didn't quite happen that way. So I was working within the architecture industry and then he was working in, he was a pastry chef and we were both working for people and just like most people in a city, it was busy. We didn't see each other. And we thought we should just try and do something together and see how that goes, combine our our different skills. And even if it's small, at least like it's not, we'll be working for ourselves and see how it goes. And then um, we started researching. At first, it was going to be a pastry shop. And then we just started researching chocolate and started really getting into... Um, the making of the chocolate and that opened a whole world of different species and different histories and different people and places across the world and we just dove into this world and started from there and got really excited about it and so we quit our jobs and found this tiny little space in an old whiskey distillery. It was only 400 square feet at the time. It was the last space. It was near the washrooms. It was just like a really crappy space. But we thought um, it was a good price for new entrepreneurs, um, and we would just start small. So that's where it all started.
0: And how did you learn about chocolate and cacao in the first place?
1: So at that time, because it was in 2003, there, there were no small chocolate makers. I think the smallest was Scharfenberger at the time and Tamori and Amade in Italy. So there wasn't like a community, a fledging community like there is right now. Um, so it was a lot of trial and error and. A lot of reading old manuscripts, old, um, technical abstracts. Any book like Marcel's book was out at that time, Marisal Persia. So she had listed story, little bits of, um, species and the agricultural part of it all. So it was just all these bits and parts Uh. flying around, talking to technicians from, Scharfenberger, um, and then David took a course in California. It was really geared towards, um, bigger, like Hershey's to make chocolate. It was called Richardson Research. And that's where it all came from. So he got, um, sort of like a base level of understanding. And then it was just us going to the hardware store and refitting machines. Now there's a whole industry that services the bean-to-bar world, but back then we'd have to get old coffee roasters and rejig them and build winnowers out of just vacuum and HVAC parts. So it was really a different landscape back then.
0: Absolutely. How how much, if you don't mind, how much would you estimate you had to spend to start the business? And this was almost This was over a decade and a half ago. How much do you think it cost before you were able to actually make that first chocolate bar?
1: Well, when we first did our business plan, we were, I mean, we were new entrepreneurs. So we had a list of, uh, it was very idealistic and ambitious. We had that we were going to bake cookies and make gelato and make hot chocolate. And we were just overly excited about everything. So we had borrowed money from family. We had borrowed money from all sorts of people. So I would say in and around 120,000, but we also had to build out a space and build out a tiny little retail store that was like a transformer. It would fold out into the hallway and fold back in at nighttime. And maybe David can give you a more accurate number. I'm just throwing that number out there, 120000 But we did run out of money building it, and we just had to start.
0: How would you say the quality of those first bars compares to the quality you could get using, say, a Premier Wonder Grinder in 2019?
1: actually it's funny cuz we just found a really old bar and it was uh <laughs> wasn't great. <laughs> We've come a long way as you can imagine in over a decade you learn a lot and um you just learn better ways to do things and you learn with every being how different it is and um all the intimacies of working with that being and just like the heat coming off the bean when you're roasting it and just all the little details with every new origin in the beginning it was just a new experiment so our first batches were not great um and we even had a lot of batches that we didn't release in the beginning cuz even as a a newbie we knew that wasn't good chocolate so we just let it sit there's so there's a lot of money up front. Just um, learning about beans and their characteristics.
0: What are some chocolates that you remember eating as a kid?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, I'm Chinese, so I don't know about uh, in in your family or childhood. They didn't eat a lot of chocolate, my family. Um, so it was, but my mom did love to bake, so she it was the baker's chocolate in the back of the cupboard that you would sneak out of the cupboard and taste and be totally shocked by the taste of. You mean
0: spit out? Did you not spit <laughs> it out Cause I definitely spit it
1: out. <laughs> I spit it out. Well because it looks like chocolate. And that's, you crave chocolate, but it, that, it wasn't chocolate. It's just something as a little person you don't understand.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh no. We we had the same, we had the same thing in our pantry.
1: Yeah. I think most kids have, have that one first experience of unsweetened chocolate, Baker's chocolate. And then David will maybe have a different experience. He's Italian and his mom had a bakery and he was the, he was the little donut maker. So <laughs> I'm sure they had chocolate stock within the bakery.
0: That sounds like a delicious childhood.
1: Yeah, it was, um well, that's sort of what gave him, he went that whole route of um making donuts with his mom to pastry chef. The way I see his career is that he sort of scaled it back to something more raw, like making chocolate, because in that time as a pastry chef, it was all couverture. So for us to start making chocolate, it was sort of changing the way we were seeing our initial business plan of making cookies and truffles and gelatos, actually making one of those raw ingredients and having a choice of Different origins, because once you start uh, amassing a library of origins, now you have all these different flavor profiles to play with, and that is part of what is really fun for us: is um, making all the confections with the origins and matching different flavors. It, I think,
0: from what I've seen, you've done a very good job on the the chocolate pier side. I've never had the pleasure of visiting Canada at all. But
1: It's really, that is a really, I mean, it's all very fun or we wouldn't do it. It gives us great pleasure (laughs) to make chocolate every day. Like it's a joy to wake up and go to work every day, knowing what we're going to be doing with the rest of our day and its work.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, a very strong connection between just being a business owner in general being a chocolate maker, you have all of these little things that you still have to take care of. You still have to clean up the equipment, you still have to do the books, you still have to
1: uh, hire and maybe fire people. We get to do fun things and over the years because we've been in business for quite a while and I mean neither one of us had businesses so we did struggle in the beginning because there's no course that will teach you about the business part of it I mean, you can learn about it, but when certain things actually happen, that's when you really learn. And we're still learning about business, but we know what parts of the business that we really like to do. And we're really still hands-on and everything. Making chocolate, coming up with the packaging. I draw the packaging. Um, we put all the flavor profiles together. We still do things. And... What we've done with the business is the stuff we don't like doing, like the HR part of it, um, the books, then we've hired people to do that or hired services to do that. And that's the great thing about being a small business at this moment in time is there's a lot of services that are online or servicing a lot of little businesses that you can tap into. So. I can't imagine a lot of chocolate makers like doing books, but now we don't have to. So that's really that's really great to just concentrate on what we really love to do and have a passion for.
0: And you actually said something just now that reminded me of when I moved to Korea three years ago, a very small, very small chocolate movement that's now exploded quite a bit mm-hmm. in, in terms of craft. And one of the things that I've found is really interesting is how people choose to describe flavor notes. So, have you found at all that your Chinese heritage has affected how you write those flavor notes? Like, do you pick out any certain kind of connections to certain foods that you ate as a kid, or if you ever went and visited China, what you, how you interpret the flavors in the chocolate, maybe differently from
1: your staff? That's a really good question. I love that question. Well, I think your palate and how you taste things is a combination of everything up until this point. Everything that you've eaten, all the childhood memories that you remember, and my family ate a lot. We ate a lot of weird ingredients. They're sort of in exploration mode all the time, and as a young person, I traveled a lot, and with David, we've traveled a lot. We're just... So interested in food, even beyond chocolate, that, um, I think the more things we taste, the more, um, notes we have in our head to describe things. So we have to be careful when we're describing things to when we do tastings or when we put tasting notes on our packaging, that it is something that people understand because sometimes it can be a little bit too obscure for people. But also, like when I paint the packages, I try and keep all the flavor notes in my head. I eat a lot of chocolate when I paint these packages. So it's kind of painting a visual of the flavors and the tasting experience in one painting. So it's, it's sort of like synesthesia it's taking something that you're tasting and putting it into a painting in terms of texture and densities and colors um, and i guess you could also equate that to music if you play a note harder or softer or it starts out soft and and gets very loud or it's sort of staccato it's um It's sort of sprinkled through the whole song of your tasting experience. Um, You have low notes and high notes. I mean, it's very complex when you have a tasting experience. So I don't know if I kind of went off topic there, but.
0: Well, it's beautiful. Like visualizing the flavor experience. I had no idea that you designed
1: and and painted all the packaging, though. That's amazing. Yeah, we try and do it all. So sometimes things come out a little slower than what we, that we'd like, but, um, it's important for us to try and, um, have the whole picture within how we experience from the making to handing this bar off to somebody for tasting. Like it's, it's, uh, all encompassing for us.
0: I mean, it's your, your business. It's sort of like your baby you have had a hand yeah. in all the good parts and the bad parts.
1: Yeah. And everything true. in between. Everything in between.
0: So what are some of those more difficult parts from the beginning and even running the business? Like having to clean the machinery or keep the books.
1: Whether you still do it or, or not? The more difficult parts is um and what we've learned better how to do is how to have other people Work within this world because it was just David and I. So it was pretty manageable, but we still have staff from when we first began. So that was new to us to have staff and other people and having them involved in this world and having them be really passionate about this world and forming this sort of chocolate family that we have and understanding the responsibilities of taking care of these people now within our world and we really are a family here especially at the factory we eat together every day we share food stories we share food um and really like this whole chocolate world is it's about people it's about the farmers that grow our cacao it's from even the truck driver that's here and delivering our cacao it's all powered by people so that's a really important part of this whole thing. So we really try and connect to all different parts of that, including the the staff that work for us. And that was sort of a difficult, because we thought, oh, we'll just make chocolate and then we'll sell it. (laughs) It's not that simple. Like there's real people with real lives involved in every part of this business and you have to take care of that.
0: that's part of running any kind of chocolate business is you have to consider these all of these moving parts or really any business but yeah when people add the word craft or say bean to bar or fine or whatever artisanal whatever word you want to put in front of it what does that mean to you how do you call yourself do you call yourself a craft
1: chocolate maker small bad well we used to say microbatch in the very beginning and we're we're still using that now because we were the only small makers at the time so we thought well we're really tiny we're not even just small we're micro in the whole landscape of chocolate makers because they were all very big players at the time even when we tried to get beans I mean Now everybody sends us samples of beans. We we almost have too many samples to process because it's very important to give feedback to to the farmers and all these small farms sending it to us. But when we first started, they were just laughing at us. They would say, excuse me, how many bags did you want or how many tons? We said, we don't want tons. We just want two bags. (laughs) And they would just laugh at us. So <laughs> that's okay. That's it's part of the learning. But for craft, it, it means, um, making it from, I mean, it, we're in Canada, so obviously we can't grow cacao, but, um, craft is, um, the whole food way all the way back to the farmer. We know most of our farmers, a lot of our farmers, if not, we know the brokers that, know the farmers were only one step away from them we have farmers calls in the middle of the night cuz it's as you know it's a global thing and we talk to them in the middle of the night and just sort of exchange ideas about fermentation or i mean it, it, we're just all plugged into the whole process and we're trying to go as far back as we can um to the growing stage and that's what craft really is is We're spending the care in making chocolate and we're treating every batch differently depending on the harvest time or when we got it or even the amount that we're roasting at the time. We're being very careful with every single batch that we do. And if it's not good, we're not releasing it. So That's another hidden cost is when we're trying Origins for the first time or we're experimenting with how we're processing it, whether it be we over-roasted it or we over it or it just was not good in the first place, the fermentation was done wrong, we just don't release bad chocolate. And we've had a lot of batches of chocolate just go in the garbage. That makes my heart hurt. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I mean... You can't release something unless it's, it's good. And if it's flawed, then it doesn't do anybody any good to release something that's flawed. I mean, if we release something that's bad, it's not good for the farm. It's not good for, um, us. It's, it's not good for the industry in general to think that, oh, if it's crafted, this is what it tastes like. Because it was, just because it was made by hand doesn't mean it's good. Um, and to us, we have a very high standard of what is good. And whether it be our fault or something that happened on the post-harvest farm level, I mean, it's a good thing because now we know you, that saying that you learn more from your mistakes, that If that went into the world, then maybe something wouldn't be tweaked at all these different stages from growing to the bar. So it's 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 generally a good thing that something good will come out of this.
0: That's a good way of looking at it, too. I don't think everyone sees it like that.
1: It's how we it's how we see it, I guess.
0: Would you say that's part of your ethos as a company or just? you too personally
1: i can't speak to other companies but this is for us because we're doing something with with so much thought into it that that's how we have to do it we this is where our bar is set because every origin is different it's it's what we think is the right expression for this origin or when we put um ingredients together we don't do it just to shock people like those two flavors have to really sing together or we can't release it that's just we have a lot of experiments that just don't work so we can't release it and some of them have taken so much time and effort but if it's the end result is that it's not good then it just remains as a learning experience.
0: You've released dozens of bars over the years. So w- what is the process like? Do you have any kind of steps that you always follow when you're releasing a new bar? What's What's the timeline like on that?
1: For a new origin, it, it will take a while because the samples are sent to us. And then we, we do cut tests and we actually make small batches of chocolate from it. And then we all analyze it. Um, before we even purchase the bean. I think most chocolate makers will do it they won't buy beans um, without testing them. So that in itself is is a uh, months in the making before we actually get to a shipment and that happens mostly with uh, every harvest we get a new sample if it's a brand new harvest um, and then we test again some of the. Farms that we have relationships with, um, we can just buy them just knowing the quality of their post harvest. And we have conversations all the time. So we know if there was too much rain that season and it's a little bit different, we just, we will trust them on their word because of we've been, we've had this strong relationship for years. Um, and then the actual chocolate making process is, can take a few weeks just to get the bars out.
0: And then on top of that, what what is the roasting and refining testing phase like?
1: Well, just because our day is, um, there's a lot going on in every day that um, it sort of gets drawn out over a period of time, some longer than others. But then sometimes we'll have a space where we can do a lot of samples at the same time. But generally, we can process three or four different samples in a day. And it's usually pretty good to do a few different samples at a time. So you can um, sort of tune your palate to four or five different flavors. And some sometimes we'll get really special cacaos coming in that will just do that single one, like when porcelana or guassade came in. We had been waiting for those beans and we had heard about those beans in 2003, but it wasn't until 11 years later that we first got porcelana and it was verified porcelana. So for that sort of sample, we, we take extra care just because there's like all this history with us and this being attached to it.
0: That is a whole nother episode and I'm, I look forward to it.
1: <laughs> yeah. That'll be fun.
0: There should be an episode just for like each legendary bean.
1: Bashley porcelain, it's this sort of holy grail. I was beginning to think that we just couldn't get it. Like we would never ever get it. And it's funny because want- the first, the first batch that we found, um, there was only a couple bags of it, but then, um, it actually went to our friend Rogue. Rogue chocolate so we're <laughs> kind of sad about that but kind of happy because it was our, our friend that we knew very well and then the next year because there's only just a small amount produced that the next year we we received the shipment so we just had it in different years
0: I just I hear about all these different people now say like porcelana porcelana style like they say like you're uh, the then the, the it, if you're just a consumer, you hear a lot of different um things about like pure white beans and how this is like the the like the holy grail like what you were saying, and it it all gets quite muddled
1: Well, and the species of cocoa beans is very muddled because it's it is an agricultural crop and it moves it moves around because they're seeds so even our guasare was discovered sort of on one side of venezuela but then it was sort of discovered by accident by um agronomists and then he took it to an agricultural center to study and they grew it there but then it also, those plants went up north to near the water and another went to where we got it, which is sort of more central. But then you get all these different flavors because they got the bean got moved and the terroir has changed this bean, but it's the same species of bean. So <clears throat> even with that, it gets muddled. Even within one country, it's. Is this, this bean is moving all over the place? And now with Venezuela in the state that it is, um, it's even more muddled because of the, the government is involved. So that's just our world <laughs> at this moment.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting how dependent many makers and many just chocolate lovers become upon certain hair and certain country's beans. People were obsessed with Ecuadorian beans a few years back. And it's sort of quieted down as there have been more um, more origins emerging in the last few years. But people always seem to be
1: looking for like the next interesting thing. When we started there were no trends. <laughs> it was just a struggle to get beans. But you're right, they're they're everywhere now. But it's also a really cool world right now because with the explosion of small bean-to-bar makers, there are, there's an explosion of small growers, small farms of one to two hectares, whether they're just doing it on their own or they're within a co-op group um, and they have a central fermentary.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Chocolate on the Road. To learn more about Cynthia and Soma Chocolate and the show, click the link in the description or visit my website at damecacao.com. That's d-a-m-e-c-a-c-a-o dot c-o-m. Enjoy your week and look out for the premiere of Season 2 next Wednesday.